Hi. And on that tone-deaf intro, welcome to another very special edition of Bitchin' Brew, the podcast that's all about having a good time, talking about good art with good people. This is officially episode number 50, which is a cool little milestone, one that I had admittedly hoped to hit a little bit sooner than this, and... I guess have already hit technically because I've put out a fair share of episodes that are two-parters and at the time were probably not counted within the Bitch and Brew canon for some reason. I, I'm Danny Random, by the way. I'm your host type person thing. That's my introduction. But yeah, it's it's a milestone episode because it is episode number 50, but also um, it's a milestone episode because it signals the start of what I really, really hope will be a cool new chapter for the podcast. Now, eagle-eared listeners of the podcast, I know that's not the saying, but fuck it. Um, those of you... Are, that our returning listeners may have noticed on the last episode, which I put out just a few days ago actually, the Albums of 2020 special, I had stopped describing Bitch and Brew as a podcast about music, life and everything in between. That was kind of the, the, the tagline of old. Um, I've started instead calling it a podcast more about the, the more sort of general term of good art. Um, while Bitch and Brew was very much born as a music podcast and... You know, for all its uh, all its crazy mid-conversation tangents, music does kind of remain my biggest love, with the obvious exception of my family and my friends. Um, it's never been my only love. I've always loved films and TV, and, you know, right back in the early days of Bitch and Brew, I did a, a WWE special with Callan from Weatherstate, and I love my professional wrestling despite knowing it's it's just panto with super kicks. Um, I've also found a lot of love for design and photography in recent years. I'm, I'm hardly an expert in any of these fields, especially when it comes to photography. I'm more of a, an observer than, than practicing it in any way. But, you know, I never claimed to be an expert in any of them, and I love them, you know, nonetheless. And while I was on hiatus, I started toying around with the idea of broadening the remit of the podcast so I can talk about my love of all of these art forms with like-minded people. So, fast forward to now, and of course, I brought the podcast out of its short hiatus the other day, as I mentioned, with the fifth annual Albums of the Year special, which I did with my good friend Dan Fisher. If you haven't heard that yet, you can go and check it out on your pod platform of choice. But I wanted to end this year also talking about the year in films. Uh, 2020 is a year which has certainly been interesting for the world of cinema. It's the latest in a series of pivotal years which have really altered the way film lovers consume and enjoy films for better or worse. And that is something which is very much discussed between myself and my guest for this podcast, the very wonderful James Hickey. Now, James is someone I've wanted to get on the podcast for for some years now, having been a long-time fan of his work as a writer and critic for the likes of Kerrang! among numerous other publications, but also as someone I, I'm very proud to call a friend and 
an acquaintance. Um, I knew that James would be a good companion for our first film podcast, having seen him talk as much about films as he does about music online, and I really wasn't wrong in making that assumption. I had a really fab time recording this. I'm probably overthinking it, but you might be able to tell that we actually recorded this one before the Albums of 2020 podcast, and as a result, I made a bit of a pig's ear of James's introduction. But he really kind of uh, took it in his stride, and before long, we were cooking on gas. And as a as a you know as a result, I'm really really chuffed with how this podcast turned out. I hope that whatever your relationship with film is, you enjoy listening to this podcast. Whether you're a devout cinephile or someone who just likes to whack on a film from time to time, I didn't want this podcast to be inaccessible in any way because I know that following certain film podcasts or just you know film based content can be tricky if you don't have you know an encyclopedic knowledge uh, of the art form and I don't claim to have that level of knowledge uh, myself and as James and I discuss I have a lot of blind spots when it comes to film a lot of a lot of films I've never seen before that I've you know a lot of that popular culture would dictate I should have really seen at this point but I've chosen to kind of just start owning that and making it my strength as I as I dip my toe into the the film podcasting pool and I I hope that you will join me as as I slowly wade into those waters to to continue the metaphor. So um hey let's get into it. I'll get a little more into the structure of the pod during my chat with James, but as opposed to it being just a countdown of our favourite films of the year, much like I've done with the Albums of the Year special, but with albums of course, um, I wanted to make it a little more free-flowing and more about just being a conversation between two avid film fans. Uh, Without further ado, let's crack on with the feature presentation. Do please enjoy Bitch and Brew's Films of 2020 special with James Hickman. All right, so welcome to a very special, very different edition of Bitch and Brew. We are at the end of the year, and usually on the podcast we'll be talking about the albums of the last 12 months, and we are still going to be doing that, but not on this episode. No, this time we're going to be talking about the films of the year. Very excited. I've loved film for a lot of my life. You would have already heard all of this because I did all this in the intro. I'm meant to be introducing my guest at this point because joining me through the wonders of modern technology is a man who does amazing charity work by day. By night, you would have seen his bylines in the likes of Kerrang! and Apple Music. He's a brilliant music journalist and critic, and just a good dude, I guess. And probably most importantly, he's a bit of a film fan. Please welcome James Hickey! Yay! Hello, thank you very much. A good dude, I guess. I love that. I love that slight element of doubt there. That's fantastic. <laughs> also, I've got a question for you. As we're doing this virtually, does that mean I'll never receive a bitch and brew mug to pose with? Yeah, unfortunately, so I might have to courier one up to you just to just to do the pose. Don't forget that. Don't forget. It just came to me in that second that I've seen people. Look, it looks pretty fetching. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get one up to you for sure. And what's your biscuit of choice? Oh, um, at this point, I mean, it could change in about thirty seconds. So at this point, I would say chocolate hobnob is mm. hard to beat. Just just at the moment, because I think that's a bit of an all timer, to be honest. It's all timer, but it's it's it is you know very much the time and you know time and place. Uh, 
bourbon also a good a popular one in my household you're a uh, chocoholic then i mean uh, relatively recently in terms of my life I, I didn't used to be i mean i used to be a very sort of super fit vegan in my 20s and now i uh, drink beer and eat chocolate and um neither of those things neither super fit nor a vegan so uh, you know <laughs> you never know how how cruel time is a very cruel mistress you you do get a lot of vegan craft beer these days though you do i don't tend to i don't tend to drink a lot of craft beer i've been known to go to watch dulwich hamlets play football and there's a lot of very arty craft beer there which tastes a little bit like um someone's put a piece of pizza in your beer it tastes a little bit a little bit strange to myself a bit herby it's not really for me um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not drinking so much these days now that I'm not doing a huge amount of gig reviews. Uh, alcohol consumption and reviewing gigs tends to go a little hand in hand. Well, there's a, there's a nice little segue here because we've obviously known each other a few years. I, I first met you, God, it must have been about six years ago now when I was doing work experience at the old Kerrang offices on Shaftesbury Avenue. And I don't know if you remember this, but after my first day at Kerrang, we went for drinks at the bar in the basement of the Curzon Soho. I do remember, and I think we were there because it's a very, uh, he won't probably be happy that I'm going to blow up his favourite hangout spot, but George Garner, much loved music journalist, but George Garner loved going to that bar a lot. So I think he he steered us all that way, but I, that was that's six years ago my goodness uh, also i'm already feeling quite old but that has not helped <laughs> i was uh, a big fan of that place I, that's the only time i've been to the curzon soho or to any curzon cinema for that matter because uh, we don't get a lot of them down on the south coast but it was you me like you say george garner and i believe nick roskell and jen walker were there as well all brilliant uh, kerrang journalists and, and that is a dream lineup <laughs> and i think i can't remember i think george did get quite drunk that night and i think he was off to see a gig i believe he was off to see fu manchu that night your memory is amazing and i think i went to see fu manchu with him uh, actually and if he was drunk it's because he had at least two pints of lager um <laughs> Probably also the case with me as well, which a Fu Manchu gig was pretty, relatively pretty tame, I'd, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how has your year been, all things considered? Well, <laughs> it has been interesting, um, very busy, quite stressful. Um, but in, terms, in times of stress, I tend to um, really dig into the work. So as you mentioned, I do some, my day job is to work for Age UK, which is a charity that helps older people. And we've had a number of campaigns this year, an emergency appeal uh, to raise 10 million pounds to help older people. So there's a lot of work around that. And by night, I would be doing a lot of stuff with the much loved Kerrang! magazine, which has obviously been doing for uh, about 13 years now. So wow. there was a lot of things to do around with, with Kerrang! Um, particulars, Kerrang! kind of shifted onto more of an online focus because obviously getting the print magazine out into the world is a very arduous task in the midst of a global pandemic. Yeah, so mm -hmm. busy. I've kept busy and to keep things within the theme of this of this podcast, watched watched a lot of films and a lot of really good films as well. 
it is it is kind of you know obviously we were going to get round to uh, to COVID at some point. It's pretty hard to ignore this year uh, when talking about anything, to be honest. Um, and before we begin, obviously, this is going to kind of deviate from the structure of the Albums of the Year podcast a little bit. We will be ending this on our respective top five films of 2020 list okay. because people bloody love a list, don't they? They do. I, I mean, I used to like lists a lot. Now I find it quite difficult. I, maybe it's because I'm too blase. Maybe it's because I've been quite busy with things. I find it quite difficult to differentiate between years on things. So I have had to do a little bit of homework to go back and check on when certain films come, came out. Because there were certain films during lockdown that really resonated, not necessarily through the subject matter. One of the films that resonated the most during this year was not from this year, which was Little Women, uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women, which I thought was a fantastic film, um, happy, incredibly sad, a slightly modern take and some modern subtext on the story, and I just absolutely loved it. But that was from last year, so that is automatically out of any listing I would have. Don't worry, I've done my homework. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really glad you say that because, yeah, I wanted to make this as much about, uh, you know, being a, a discussion of our experiences surrounding films over the last 12 months. And obviously we haven't been able to go to cinemas for a good portion of this year. Um, and a lot of my experiences with film and experiences in the cinema when they were open do involve films that can't technically be classed as 2020 releases. Now, I know we discussed this, obviously, when it, when it came to me approaching you to do this podcast, but we're classing a 2020 film as a film that had its general UK release in the year of our Lord 2020. So there are some films that we'll probably be discussing that some of the, you know, film buffs, film nerds out there are going to be like, well, that actually came out in 2019, I think you'll find. Yes, okay, it may have been, you know, out in different countries in 2019, or it may have done the festival runs uh, in the year before, but I'm classing this as general cinematic or streaming release in the UK in 2020. So yeah, it, it is obviously kind of hard to ignore the huge impact of COVID on the world of film and, fil and the film industry in 2020. What do you think has been the most positive impact of COVID in the way that we consume films and enjoy films? I think the embracing or the, the sort of prevalence of home streaming. I mean, Netflix was very much getting its claws into everyone on Amazon Prime. Um, and I just think that necessity has sort of pushed us further into their embraces. I think that I had seen a number of films at the cinema at the beginning of the year. I would be lying if I said I was the most prolific cinema goer. I love watching films. I don't always love going to the cinema necessarily. I am probably one of those grouchy people who's a little, you know, you can't really control other people's behaviour in the cinema. And quite often when you go, especially when, you know, these cinemas where booze is involved. I know I'm going to sound like a really grumpy old man now. There are many films that I remember and can remember more about what irritated me about someone either eating uh, nachos or... <laughs> talking really loudly than details of the film necessarily. To answer your question, I think there are lots of films that are very much of the time and have sort of coalesced and come together during this period. A great example is the film Host, um, which is a, uh, a horror film. We're all using Zoom during our working days now and you know many people find Zoom a little bit scary anyway, but this a horror film based around, it was very much kind of a quarantine focus and um, yeah, it just used the time and the kind of the, the, the kind of issues that we're in the middle of at the moment 
brilliantly. I mean, I don't know if you've seen it. It's barely, I think it's like an hour and just over an hour. Yeah. And it ground running almost immediately. And it is genuinely, and I say this to someone who doesn't find a huge number of films scary, it's actually scary. Yeah, I loved Host. I actually watched it just last week in preparation for this podcast. I got my free trial of Shudder uh, in order to watch it and actually found that there, there are way... Uh, way more films on Shudder that I'd never actually seen before that I may actually keep it past the free trial and and go back and watch a load of old horror films but yeah it took me a lot of nerve to ever use Zoom again after seeing Host it is only 56 minutes long to kind of reflect that you know Zoom call only lasting 40 minutes and I think it takes like 16 minutes for more than two people to join the call and then you're kind of in that 40 minutes and um, I should probably mention as well, we're going to keep spoilers as limited as possible on this podcast because we're, we're, we're being positive and we're recommending people films, but I don't want to, I don't want to spoil what goes on in host, but yeah, it's, it's not an original concept, but I think it was just superbly constructed and obviously it was filmed, um, edited and released, I think within the space of about 12 weeks yeah. um, during lockdown one. And uh, really light on on like post production. The special effects are, are kind of really simple and yet really effectively done. And it was all kind of done through um, uh, stunt coordinators and, and and visual effects experts, kind of offering advice remotely, um, which I think is just it's just fantastic. I'm really glad though that I didn't watch it during lockdown one and that I uh, watched it during lockdown two. And I, I watched it as well in the perfect environment. I like to be able to watch films on like the biggest screen possible, whether that's a kind of cinema screen or my TV. I don't usually like watching films on my iPad, definitely don't watch them on my iPhone. But I was actually sat on my bed watching this on an iPad and it was the perfect environment because it was just the most immersive viewing experience considering it is all set within Zoom. And it's got a cinematic release just recently, actually, as we record this. And part of me actually doesn't want to go see it in the cinema because I feel like watching it on a mobile device kind of adds to that viewing experience. I, th- I think you're completely right. I think it played into that. And it was, and it, and it, as a film, it was quite explicitly about this time. It could only really be made at this time. There are also films that I think have resonated a little bit more because of the timing. I, I don't know if you've seen the film, The Vast of Night, sort of 1950s set, kind of Roswell type. Uh, sort of allusions to to um, sci-fi and it's a, it's a really good film that has some very kind of paranoid undertones to it. One of those films that I think probably was in production around the time but would it have had the audience and would it have resonated with people if you weren't in this time? I, I find it hard to, to believe but it's really great to have a film that people might not have seen ordinarily really having a great impact with people mm. and getting the biggest audience possible. Is that the one, is that on Amazon Prime, The Vast of Night? That one is on Amazon yeah. Prime. Yeah, I, 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 I also need to, we need to be forgiven for, if anyone gets annoyed, if we get the streaming platform that any films are on. <laughs> I believe it is on Amazon Prime. Look, we've got enough to worry about within our own lives as opposed to trying to give people the best. That, just Google it, you know? Exactly. Going back to, to pre-COVID, when we could all go to the cinemas if we weren't wound up by fellow patrons of the cinema. The first film I saw this year, I, I think I went to the cinema like super early in the year. It was probably like January 2nd. It may have even been New Year's Day. And I either saw, I couldn't figure out which one I'd seen first, but it was either 
uh, the gentleman, the Guy Ritchie caper, his supposed return to form, or Jojo Rabbit. I mean, I, look, with, with the gentleman, I, I'm a huge fan of um, Guy Ritchie's Snatch. It is one of my comfort blanket films. I go back to it time and time again. I probably watch it about three, four times a year, to be honest. I think it is just gold. And like I say, this was kind of hailed as a return to form for, for Guy Ritchie. He'd done a couple of, you know, this was kind of after he'd done the, the King Arthur film with Charlie Hunnam, which I didn't bother watching on account of how panned it was and, you know, Sherlock Holmes and didn't he do Aladdin as well he did yeah and I know that when it came out it was met with a kind of limited amount of praise mainly because it was kind of called out for some questionable content you know um, very sort of near the knuckle and uh, you know push some buttons that maybe didn't need to be pushed and you know that that aside the, the controversial moments within that film didn't necessarily stop me personally from having a really fun time watching The Gentleman. I think it contains some career best performances, especially from Hugh Grant. And I never thought I'd say that in 2020. But then this was the year that I watched Paddington 2 for the first time and realised, oh, actually, Hugh Grant's on top form at the moment. But also love Colin Farrell in The Gentleman. Have you, have you, have you seen it yourself, James? I have seen The Gentleman. And... Uh... Yeah, I agree with what you say. I mean, Guy Ritchie is one of those filmmakers who he came out of making music videos and he still makes films in very much the same way. His, the films that, when you talk about his gangster films, you, you feel like they're the ones he perhaps has a little bit more control of versus the, you know, when he does the more studio type film, like something like Aladdin. I rewatched fairly recently Rock and Roller. Um, I've seen, I really liked both Sherlock Holmes films. The King Arthur was terrible. I, I, did, I thought The Gentleman was pretty ridiculous. And uh, it's interesting as well that you mentioned there are some really questionable things. You go back and look at a lot of his films, there's a lot of really offensive stereotypes and have characters say some pretty offensive things. Now, making those films now obviously we are much more hyper aware of what is kind of acceptable for people to be saying but at the same time i think he still suffers a little bit from the tarantino obsessive trying to be very clever with his dialogue mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, he still had to think of someone to say some of those things there's some pretty offensive particularly racist stuff in the, in the film that was you know was just undermined it but you know then again it's not I don't think anyone's going to be even in Guy Ritchie's oeuvre which sounds like a really strange word to, to use in relation to Guy Ritchie's films I don't think the gentleman is going to be one of the uh, the ones that people are talking about in years to come I thought it was fun um, but I also thought that yeah some of it was a little bit ridiculous now do I go do I start talking about Jojo Rabbit because I personally Jojo Rabbit is one of those interesting films whereby there were the camp who there were those who believed that it was very much a um, a very clever kind of heartwarming spin on tr- troubling subject matter, and there were those who thought it was sort of slightly tone deaf and bizarre. And I'm in the latter camp. All oh, right, think. okay. I don't. 
necessarily. I wasn't a huge fan of the film. I, I have, yeah, I, I, I watched it having had, which is, can be a difficult position to be in sometimes when everyone you know has bombarded you with how brilliant a film is. And you already, having read a little bit about it, had some, some slight issues. I didn't, it wasn't for me. I, I think that you can make films with different spins on subject matter, but I just thought that it was, it, it didn't land with me in the way that it has with a lot of other people. And sometimes that's the case. There's some things you just can't account for. It wasn't, it wasn't for me. And the, the praise heaps on it just only makes that feeling, I guess, a bit more acute if you are stand away from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read the source material um, that it was adapted from uh, to Academy Award winning effect. It was really nice to see Taika Waititi holding an Oscar this year, although I would have much rather have him hold one for What We Do in the Shadows, which I think is possibly the best comedy film of the last 10 years. I fucking love that film. Um, at the time Jojo Rabbit came out, I was only really familiar with Taika Waititi as a result of What We Do in the Shadows. And as a result, I think Jojo Rabbit had more gut punch moments than, than I was expecting, especially the sort of stuff surrounding Scarlett Johansson's character. I have since watched Hunt for the Wilder People, which I know is a lot of people's favourite Taika film. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And it kind of puts the more dramatic tone of Jojo Rabbit in context. I think there's a brilliant cast of young actors in it. And like I say, I think Scarlett Johansson was brilliant in it. But Sam Rockwell was so underrated in that film and so underrated in pretty much any film. I fucking love Sam Rockwell. I think Sam Rockwell is one of the best actors working today. I think I saw a, a list recently of the, the sort of 20 best actors of the, uh, the 21st century. And he wasn't in the list and neither was another favourite actor, uh, Michael Shannon. And I mm. just thought, I can't take that list seriously. I mean, from ever since I saw um, Sam Rockwell in a film called Lawn Dogs to... He's also in, it's worth noting, his first screen appearance was in the live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. Oh, um, wow. So, you know, Sam Rockwell fans, you know, if you love Sam Rockwell and the Turtles, that is the, the, the crossover, the overlapping point in that Venn diagram. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a uh, that's his first screen appearance, but I love Sam Rockwell. The Green Mile, he's just, he just has something slightly cool, but also slightly feral about him. I just think he's... Just yeah, he's just amazing, and he was one of the, the 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 reasons that I did want to watch the film. And I realised that my opinion is going to be slightly different to some people's on on it. It just you know there are many films that I love that other people it didn't land with. But I just thought I think um, mixing a film with a mixture of tone. I think as I've grown older, and this is getting you know tedious personal insight now perhaps, but those films which are kind of that you know what you call you know I'm not saying that was a black comedy but those films where the tone is mixed between you know this the Shane Black type films and those kind of films that are you know mixed you know people being comedy and you know thriller elements and films that have mixtures of tone sometimes for me unless they're executed very skillfully very deftly I I find some of them a little uncomfortable and I think right. that Weird. I think that might have been the case with, with Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, I, I, I think I need to give it a rewatch, to be honest, because it, it was right at the start of the year. But I, you know, it was probably going into 2020, one of the most anticipated films for me for a, 
certainly at the start of the year. Before I go on, can you remember the first film that you saw this year? You know what? I think it was uh, I think it was 1917. I, I'm a big fan of Sam Mendes, and I was that was a film I was really had a lot of expectation for, and I think that a lot of people had harped on. I think that a lot of focus had, had been on the technical aspect of it and the fact it was this kind of long um, continuous or two rather continuous sequences um, sort of stopped at quite a pivotal point in the film, no spoilers. And I, I think there was a lot of focus on that and I think that maybe detracted from the fact that it was a really, really beautiful film. It was, technically it was fantastic. There is a moment in the film when there is a there's a sort of ruin a ruin of a city where these flares have gone up and I, I think it's one of the most beautiful sequences I've seen in a good few years and I also think that the uh, it had an incredible incredible score as well the music was beautiful it was just I'm using the word beautiful a lot I really loved that film and um, the other the other film that I thought was that I saw around that time very close to around that time I think was Uncut Gems. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> which um, obviously was on Netflix, but got a cinema, a cinematic release, and I wanted to see it in the cinema because um, the Safdie Brothers films have this kind of anxiety-inducing quality to them, this propulsive... I don't know if you've seen, like, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn, who did Drive, he did the original film. His first film was a film called Pusher, set in... Copenhagen, that sort of driving relentlessness that mm. also leaves you as a bag of nerves. Really. That's what Uncut Gems was. I thought it was an incredible film. I think Adam Sandler's performance is fantastic. It just, it was successfully made me feel incredibly uncomfortable, which I think is, um, I think that's probably, that was the aim. I mean, yeah. that idea, you were with him there from one, you know, situation of him trying to make ends meet to the next, but, and also kind of getting a sense of this guy who seemed to be completely addicted to the creation and remedying of chaos incredible film yeah i i loved uncut gems um my girlfriend not so much she kind of gave up after about an hour in and basically just thought it was a bunch of people yelling fuck you at each other for for about uh, you know the first hour and then i was like no because it gets really really good in the like following hour and 20 minutes um, and I know some people were initially very turned off by the the kind of opening act of the film and and the kind of screenplay and dialogue was kind of very off putting for them. Uh, but for me, yeah, really, really propulsive. I I haven't actually seen that um, Nicholas Winding Refn film Pusher. You say is the name of it? So he did a trilogy of, of film. I think it's just it's a good reference point for the the Saturday mm-hmm. Brothers films. Yeah, he it was his first film, and um, it became a tri- it was so successful that it became a trilogy of films and. It features, I think it was one of the, the first roles for Mads Mikkelsen, who's obviously been in, you know, um, Casino Royale and in Hannibal. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just very much of that. If you liked Uncut Gems, it's very much of that, that, um, that ilk. Yeah. Very edge of the seat stuff. But, yeah. you know, probably going to have some sort of adrenaline dump after the film's finished. You're going to feel pretty rubbish afterwards. Oh, my God, yeah. And uh, and listening to the score in isolation as well, we're probably going to be talking a lot about scores and soundtracks during this podcast because we're both, obviously, you know, naturally music writers and, and, and critics. But Daniel Le Patin's score, or as, as he's better known, 10 Tricks Point Never, uh, just this really surreal, bright, synthy score 
Um, but then, you know, the next minute, the sort of um, one of the centerpiece uh, sort of set pieces of the film, the music kind of really reflects that propulsive anxiety inducing nature. Yeah, I, I thought it was fantastic. I still haven't actually this this was my kind of introduction to the Safdie brothers and I still haven't watched um, Good Time, which is their other uh, feature length film. Uh, which I believe might still be on Netflix. It's just been set on my watch list for a little while now. I think it is, and it is definitely worth. It is definitely worth watching. It has that similar. There's something quite weirdly philosophical about uncut gems and quite art arty. That sort of I can't spoil the film, but the kind of the beginning and the end, kind of the bookended sort of sequence of, of is quite art. So Good Time is definitely of that in that style, though mm. very you know non-stop. It's a great film. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go back to 1917, I, I, it's funny you say nonstop. I've, I've not really kind of been one for war movies in the past. I, I guess there's, you know, the, the, the exceptions to the rule, like I love Full Metal Jacket, for example. Um, Tropic Thunder? <laughs> I mean, Tropic Thunder is, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> Uh, of, of if, if Tropic Thunder is anyone, in anyone's top five war films. Um, but I was talking about, as an aside, I was talking about Tropic Thunder the other day and the fact that recently added to Netflix is a film not from 2020, so I'll mention it very quickly, but the film Galaxy Quest, which Sam Rockwell is in. Yeah. And his very precursor, that sort of, um, that very meta, um, some people, what the blurring of the character and the, yeah, Galaxy Quest is definitely a precursor to Tropic Thunder and well worth watching if anyone hasn't seen it. Yeah, I need to go back and rewatch it. I've not watched that in a long old time. But yeah, war, war movies have never really been my thing. But 1917 and one other film from 2020, which we'll get onto in a little bit, has really made me reevaluate that. And, you know, like you said, it's, it's kind of nonstop from early on. My, my heart was kind of in my throat because it, it doesn't it doesn't mess around. Uh, you're literally like straight in there with the, I suppose, the quote unquote action with that film. It's really, really taut and uh, them kind of going over the top. And, you know, again, I'll keep it spoiler free, but into the abandoned German barracks was, uh, I, I went to go and see 1917 on my own and I'm still kind of getting used to going to the cinema on my own. I only did it like once before last year and I chose to see Midsommar for some reason on my own. And that was not not a good choice. A terrible idea. I mean, I, I absolutely... I absolutely love that film, but it's another film, you know, some that made me acutely uncomfortable. It's absolutely beautiful, but as a film to go and see on your own, yeah, I think you'd probably hug the nearest person after coming out of the cinema. Not obviously <laughs> not, um, but uh, at the time that would have definitely, I'd have definitely had to do that afterwards. That's, yeah. a, that's a hard going film. <laughs> but certainly being sat on my own watching 1917 and the reactions, I must have looked a tit, honestly. Um, you know, I think like you said, it's, it's kind of full of technical achievements and uh you know i i felt kind of hook line and sinker like a lot of people for that continuous shot style i thought that was fantastic but also uh george mckay in the kind of lead role what an absolute star yeah he's he's the real deal he's got this intensity this sort of innocence to him, but there was also this intensity brilliantly displayed in that. Um, similarly, um, Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen, if you haven't seen that film. He's, no, I he's, haven't. He's really great in that. And um, the Kelly Gang. I mean, the Kelly Gang, I'm not sure. I don't think I'm getting the title word for word there, so forgive the, me. The, uh, the true history of the Kelly Gang. 
the true history of the Kellyanne, which is the the title of the book that it's um, yeah that it's the whole thing's based on. It's not the greatest film ever, but no. quite similar star to a, another film that I love also not from twenty twenty called The Proposition, which is written by Nick Cave. If anyone's not seen that, with uh, um, who was in that film? Um, was it Guy Pearce in that film? Guy Pearce is in it. Ray Winston's in it. George McCarthy is fantastic in in uh, the Kelly Gang. He has this kind of. I'm not sure if it's very realistic historically because he has a mullet in it. So I'm not sure when the mullet came into. <laughs> back. I, I fear that it's, it was not quite as early as that film would suggest. But yeah, he's he's definitely a, a, a you know a huge uh, a huge star. And that's another thing. It's great to see. A lot of examples of great, you know, great to see British actors on the world stage. Um, another example of a, you know, a great, great British actors, you know, Queen and Slim, two British leads in that film. Uh, just a fantastic, um, fantastic film. I, I, as I was watching it, uh, there's a film I, I love called um, The Secret in Their Eyes, which is an Argentinian film. And it was remade, got an American remake with Nicole Kidman. It's just absolutely gutted it of all things that made it. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I mentioned that film is that it pulled off this film. It was, it was simultaneously like a thriller. It was political. It was a love story. And you don't necessarily always think American films are able to, to, to balance all those elements. But Queen and Slim absolutely did that for me. Yeah, Queen and Slim. I mean, Daniel Kaluuya is just one of the, the best around, the best of his generation. Um, I think, you know, myself, like a lot of people, were probably introduced to him through Get Out. Uh, before realising that uh, we'd actually seen him a lot sooner as Posh Kenneth on the first two seasons of Skins. Yeah, he's in, he's in a lot of stuff. I think he did some Inside Number Nine. He did might have done some stuff with Harry Enfield. He's done a lot. He's yeah, he was. <laughs> and you know what's brilliant is much like much like oh what's it, what's Olivia Coleman in Peep Show. Always brilliant when she's in Peep Show, but you 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 could never predict that career trajectory. Some people you see instantly and go. This is where this person is going. They're going to the top. Both those cases would be difficult to make that prediction, but they are both so brilliant. Daniel Kaluuya is, is Get Out is obviously a fantastic film, but as we're in, you know sticking with the 2020, his performance in Queen and Slim. Yes, there's a film which I'm not going to. There's going to be no spoiler for me, but there's a, a very pivotal moment early in the film which sets the, the whole thing in motion, and it's kind of it's kind of the end of his. There's a moment where he realizes that his innocence. And all his efforts to be a good person and to live a you know a good a, a good wholesome life have kind of been shattered, and you sort of see this wince on his face. And I'm you know maybe because our focus has become much more intimate because we're we're all sort of locked in and indoors. That these kind of these sort of small gestures and things mean seem to mean more. Another film that I would mention as loving this this year, relatively recent film, um, Uncle Frank which is on Amazon Prime. Paul Bettany in it. Paul Bettany is an actor I've liked for many, many years. Um, he did a film many years ago called Gangster Number One, which he was pretty terrifying in. And he's, you know, he was away for a few years and he's done a lot of, you know, films like, um, he's in the Avengers, in the biggest film franchise of all time. But it's great to see him sort of do something in much more kind of smaller scale. And there's a moment in the film, Uncle Frank, where um, his, his character who is, uh, he's 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 gay and his family don't know and there's this very difficult conversation and this physically he kind of physically has a reaction like like a twitch like someone having an allergic reaction to something and it's just it's just these small moments seem to i think to mean more um but to me i sort of looking for you you're sort of your focus on films is can 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 shift 
as your, your circumstances shift. But, you know, Paul Bettany, another example of a British actor doing it, you know, having an incredible career. And it's, it's very heartening to see stuff like that. I, I haven't seen Uncle Frank yet, uh, but I, I've heard very good things. So I think it'll be on my watch list over Christmas. But it, it's performances like that and, and you know, from, from Daniel Kaluuya and also we should mention Jodie Turner-Smith, uh, just a sort of a stunning breakout performance and not to stray too far into sort of Kermodian analysis of films uh, during this podcast um, but it, they, they're kind of masterclasses in that show don't tell style of acting they're, they're both absolutely incredible and to get two people at those stages in their careers that well matched in terms of their acting abilities to have that chemistry they have they're both absolutely incredible um that film juggled so many different elements so deftly it's just talking about it makes me want to watch it again and we're talking about the the sort of timeliness that the film's resonating this year the black lives matter movement obviously a film like that has is a very powerful document at a time like this and it's yeah absolutely incredible film um i can't say enough amazing things about it it's obviously a, a hugely important film, like you say, like COVID aside, I think the the, the most pivotal uh, event uh, globally this year has been the kind of resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement following uh, the incident involving the killing of, of George Floyd. Again, no spoilers, but it has this kind of heart in throat final act, which left me feeling in a similar way to how I felt when I saw uh, Spike Lee's Black Klansman a couple of years ago, just that kind of contextualization with what's going on in the world right now. But yeah. I would encourage people not to be put off by that because I know with, with films, a lot of people just need escapism from the from the cruel realities of the real world. I think it is also just a hugely kind of endearing road movie, which you can get swept up in. Some of the, some of the scenery just sort of shot out the window of a car. I mean, this is an amazing uh, directorial debut. I believe the director is called Melina Matsukas and it's her feature film debut. Uh, makes me very excited to see what's next for her. And yeah, I can't sing my praises highly enough of, of Daniel Kaluuya and, and Jodie Turner-Smith, who just give the most intoxicating uh, performances. The scene where they are, uh, where they go dancing in the bar has got to be one of the sexiest things I think I've ever seen in film. It's not, it's, not yeah. involving a sex scene. Yeah, it's, it's, it, although there is a pretty sizzling one of those later on in the film as well. It is, it's... Um, it's <laughs> It's an incredible film, road movie, love story, political statement. And you see, as you say about the ending, you know, it's easy enough to try and create these happy endings, but that is not the way life is turning out for a lot of people. Um, another film I mentioned, not from this year, that is uh, a real labour of love film, a film called Blind Spotting, which if anyone, everyone should check out. An incredible film. It took many, many years for the two stars of the film, um, who were the writers, to, to get the film out. Again, a very challenging ending that's open to a lot of interpretation. Very charged, incredible. Check it out. Well, uh, I think a lot of people very much argued that Queen, uh, Queen and Slim was uh, cruelly snubbed at the Oscars this year. But one film that really, really definitely wasn't snubbed, and I, I'd imagine this is something we're going to be talking about, not just at this stage in the podcast, but may, maybe towards the end, uh, foreshadowing there, uh, Parasite. We've got to talk about Parasite. I, when we were talking about the films we saw at the beginning of the year, I said 1970 might be the first. Perhaps it was not. Perhaps it was Parasite. Parasite is one of those 
I mean, it's, it's very difficult to describe and I don't know why international films seem to manage these perhaps sen different sensibilities, different traditions, but they seem to be able to juggle these various elements sometimes a lot better than what we call, you know, mainstream British and American films, particularly American films. Yeah. Uh, is about, you know, it's a it's Korean Hitchcockian film about class. Yeah. Which... which there's a lot of different elements that don't all necessarily seem like they would go together. It's, it's just one of those films that is absolutely thrilling and it's thrilling because it's so unconventional and you don't know where it's going and features incredible performances. And I don't think it can be overstated. The importance of a, of a non-English language film winning Best Film at the Oscars is just... It's just an inc it, it will remain an incredible feat, particularly given what a fractious you know charged time we're living in i remember thinking about coming on this i remember that donald trump had made a comment about was you know is, is then something wrong with american movies like suggesting that it was an outrageous snub that after decades and decades a non-english language non-american film should win best film not best foreign film the, the term foreign also is, is a pretty unpleasant one in yeah. the context yeah um but I, it's just, yeah, it's just an incredible film. It, it blew me away. One of those films in the cinema, you're just, you know, uh, completely gripped at all points. Loved it. I, th I think it's taken off more than any piece of world cinema in the 21st century. Um, and, you know, uh, when he accepted, I think it was when he accepted the Best Director Award at the, the Golden Globes, uh, Bong Joon-ho uh, had that wonderful analogy um, about overcoming the one-inch barrier uh, when it comes to world cinema. I am admittedly a philistine when it comes to movies that are not in the English language. I don't think it's intentionally. I think, you know, like I say, I've always loved film, but I'll be the first person to admit that I have a lot of blind spots when it comes to films, just lots of films that I probably should have seen at this point, but I haven't seen and a lot of those are kind of world cinema films and you know within the first five minutes I completely forgot that I was watching a Korean language film it might have something to do with the fact that I usually watch films with subtitles on anyway but I think I would kind of echo the widespread advice uh, around Parasite that you should go into it as blindly as possible uh, uh, certainly plot wise at least absolutely he um i think it's true of several of his films he, he just has his films are very unconventional i mean even if you look back at his other m movies he's done snowpiercer which oh, be, love snowpiercer Snowpiercer is you know on paper a fairly bananas idea <laughs> a fantastic satire uh, it's you know, a fantastic yeah. comment on class again um was obviously resonated with a lot of people because it's been made into a tv series on netflix i believe with uh david diggs from clipping who's also in blind spotting really tying uh, oh, up all oh right i was, I was gonna say hamilton he's one of the stars and co-writers of uh blind spotting so oh, check wow. the film out it's fantastic um the host is another sort of on paper it's supposedly a film about it's a, it's a monster movie but it's about so much more it's about family it's about some of it's about archery it's it's again it's, it's, it's <laughs> films about so many different things and i think it's important for people to you know i genuinely have heard people saying about you know i'm there to watch something not read it i mean it's i and, I, no, there's no time to, to go into the sort of uh, the, how I feel about people say stuff like that. But I, what I would say is that these films offer the kind of views of different sensibilities of storytelling and people's stories that 
we need now more than ever. Yeah. You know, different perspectives, different ways of telling stories, different traditions. And um, yeah, if that film is the one that kicks open that door to more people doing it, then it's even more powerful than in its own right. It's just a brilliant film. It's also a hugely influential one. Yeah, uh, I, I, I have plenty more to say about Parasite. Uh, which I might have to save a little bit till later, but I do think even if, if you've never seen a piece of, of of world cinema before, or you know cinema that's kind of not in your in your native tongue, then uh, Parasite is an amazing kind of uh, launchpad for that. You know, I, I everyone I've recommended it to has kind of been a bit apprehensive. They're like, oh, you know, world cinema isn't really my thing. I, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to follow it along with reading the subtitles. And every single person I've recommended it to has come out of it and go, wow, that was. It, incredible what what have i been kind of missing i think it's impossible to not get anything out of parasite regardless of your kind of sensibilities and your preferences towards film that that was kind of the last film i saw in the cinema before everything went to shit yeah (laughs) um you know covid happened uh cinemas closed uh productions were were halted releases were pushed back what what was uh, for you, what was the kind of the biggest casualty as a result of COVID in terms of like films that were meant to be coming out and have since been pushed back or maybe not getting a cinematic release? What was the what was the one that was the most gutting for you? I mean, after talking about you know, all these kind of films like blind spotting and films that may be slightly underground films, to, mine was to go to the other end of the spectrum. Mine was No Time to Die. My upbringing was very much focused on uh, watching Bond films. Uh, with my dad so I was very much looking forward to that and that was a that was a real blow but that sort of I think No Time to Die and, and Tenet really sort of were those two films that really highlighted the the quandary that Hollywood was going through about whether you should put a film back which in the case of when No Time to Die was put back maybe twice maybe even three times and you know do we think it's going to be released in March I don't really know uh, Tenet also was put back at one point and then I think uh, Christopher Nolan's you could call it bloody mindedness or you could call it him wanting people to see the film in the way it was intended that did eventually get people into the cinema and I don't think there are many other filmmakers that could get that many people sitting in a cinema in the, I mean I went to the IMAX it was it was packed genuinely packed and I don't think there were many filmmakers I think a Bond film could do it but I still think Aside from those big kind of IMAX type screens, relatively speaking, it, it did well, but it didn't do Christopher Nolan well. But yeah, No Time to Die was the one that was the was the the most heartbreaking, I think. And I don't think we can. I don't know what will happen if they were to put it back again, because that would have been so far after the film's completion. And mm-hmm. I think I think people's good, uh, goodwill they pushed the film back really quickly. As in, they seem to spot uh, MGMC to spot the, the 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 need to move the film swiftly and decisively, but I think people's goodwill has uh, a limit to it. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's the film I'd love to see. Weirdly enough, No Time to Die was the big one for me as well. And this is someone who's, uh, you know, very very much. I, I was kind of brought up in the Pierce Brosnan era of Bond, and so I have uh, a sort. Of, they hold a special place in my heart, despite the fact I know they're objectively terrible. Um, and well, hang on, Goldeneye is great. Okay, Goldeneye is great. The rest of them are joy. <laughs> 
George Garner, and a shout out, second mention George Garner, loves Tomorrow Never Dies. I think a lot of the Pierce Brosnan ones have dated extraordinarily, extraordinarily badly, yeah. uh, but I still love, I still love Goldeneye. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 they still hold a special place in my heart because it was just kind of what I was brought up on. Um, but, you know, certainly not having been the biggest fan of the Craig era of Bond. Uh, you know, I, I really loved uh, Casino Royale. Then then you had Quantum of Shithouse. Um, then you had... Uh, I, I wasn't even that big a fan of Skyfall. I think I think it was uh, beautiful. Hang on, shot. hang on a minute. This is this is two strikes now in quick succession here. You're telling me the Sky uh, Casino Royale, fantastic. Quantum of Solace. I think Quantum of Solace is proof of that sort of stubbornness. That was I think released. That came out in the midst of a writer's strike. So that's why that was right. Pretty- okay. Apparently, the rumours are Daniel Craig was rewriting some of the dialogue on set. So that's that should give an indication why that wasn't quite the film people wanted to be and but hang on sky four is almost definitely one of the best film bond films ever in terms of encapsulating bond past and present everything you like about bond and also adding in new elements i know i know people always talk about the. i know this is not a 2020 film i know people always talk about the bit it turning home alone at the end but <laughs> for me i love casino Royale, but scarf for me was a huge huge bond film and summarized everything i liked about it but also had a slight new twist in it yeah so i did that's two stri- that's two strikes now danny okay you, you, bond you, thin ice. This is end prematurely you you've convinced me to rewatch it and and i haven't seen i uh, oh god i'm gonna strike out here i haven't seen spectre so um, i mean like Skyfall, I don't think you're like Spectre because I think Spectre was a diminished return after, right? After, and I can't. Uh, if you haven't seen that, I don't want to spoil it, but you know, no. it does try to kind of goes the the, uh, the Sherlock route, right? Okay, tie up some loose ends that really, yeah, don't work. <laughs> so yeah, weirdly enough, considering my relationship with with Bond films, um, I, I don't know what it was. It might have been the fact that um, uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge was involved in the in the sort of co writing uh, of it. It might have been the inclusion of actors like Anna Diarmas. But yeah, I, I I was absolutely gutted to see it continuously being pushed back. The the one another one for me as well was uh, a Quiet Place Part Two. I, I still am dying to see that. And the you know the one that's kind of um, probably the one of the biggest casualties. Again, this is this is this is someone who is um, not the biggest fan of modern day. Disney films, the live action remake of Mulan, I was very excited to see on the big screen. It seemed like a really exciting proposition. And so when that went straight to Disney Plus, which I'm not subscribed to, I was gutted. I mean, I think that's that's um, that's an illustration of a, a fairly bold bold step from a studio i think it frustrated a lot of people who are already paying subscri- subscription fees to have to pay an extra charge if i've understood how that works correctly mm-hmm. and now there's talk that um, a lot of this sort of big s- slate of summer 2021 warner brothers films such as i think dune and matrix 4 will have mm-hmm. simultaneous cinematic releases and um, releases on HBO Max. Now, I think increasing the ways in which people can access films is really important. I know people are very precious about the tradition of cinema and going to the cinema. If circumstances mean we can't go, then this is a, a useful solution. But I, I think it's been really interesting to see how the different studios have adapted during this thing. We're in a place where the Bond franchise is sort of backs itself into a bit of a corner and is in a bit of a tough situation having moved it and probably 
not be able to move it again. But yeah, I think it's... Um, I'm not going to say I was massively disappointed about missing Mulan that necessarily. I'm yet to watch it, I'll be honest. Yeah, um, I, I, I still haven't watched it, not being a, a, a Disney Plus uh, subscriber. Um, does that mean you're not... That means you're not watching The Mandalorian then? Um, I, I, I have still not watched The Mandalorian, no. This is... this is. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that... Pre- uh, so that's not a third strike, but you know, some people, <laughs> some people would find that outrageous. Yeah, I, I, I do think that the big studio films, that's the struggle of the studios to find out how they adapt to this. Um, but opening the door to, you know, smaller, um, more modestly budgeted films mm. being to our, you know, has worked out well for viewers definitely this year. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm really interested to see, you know, not not to rely too heavily on like what the what the awards kind of say, what's the kind of big Oscar bait picks. But I think it's going to really open up the floor for some more independent features, obviously, at the um, at the at the big awards uh, next year. So I'm really excited to see how the nominations for that pan out. But I yeah. think obviously the the attention has turned to streaming after cinemas closed. You know, Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime Video were already kind of household names at this point. There was the launch of Disney Plus, and I think Apple TV Plus had launched at that point, but had really kind of uh, come into its own around the time of the pandemic when they took on was it Greyhound, the Tom Hanks film, which I, I've I've not seen, admittedly. But also the the proliferation of smaller streaming platforms so you know we mentioned shutter already curzon home cinema uh, bfi player uh, movie I, I like what what's your kind of streaming game like are you kind of signed up to all of these streaming sites or do you kind of try and keep it quite limited uh, i'm signed up to i've got netflix and prime but i've also relatively recently I, I mean i used to buy a lot of dvds and blu-rays and have recently had to get rid of a huge quantity of them which was uh, was heartbreaking autobiographically knowing when you bought those films was very sad uh, relatively recently because of some of the films that i had in part of company i've got bfi player the selection of films on there is fantastic and mm. um, you know to those who you know would like to open you know broaden their horizons to more international films the selection on that and curzon Home cinema are just are both fantastic and uh, wish list wise. I mean, I'm not one of those people who uses lists a lot, but definitely with those with BFI player, there's so much uh, on the watch list that I've added recently. Yeah, that's a so those there's so much. The truth is, there's so much. Um, yeah, the, I think there, there's the, too much. That is the thing. There is there is too much. Um, but there's also there's also. Uh, I mean, I got an email just before we did this which was sort of trying an email from Netflix about their insight on who's watching what films and what are the biggest 10, I think the 10 biggest things that people are watching on Netflix. And honestly, they tried to suggest that ahead of The Crown and The Queen's Gambit, they were trying to suggest that Ava, a straight-to-video Jessica Chastain thriller in the sort of vein of, you know, some of those sort of Charlie's Theron actions where they, you know, you read all that. That was the film that everyone in the country was watching on Netflix. That is completely, completely ridiculous. And I, yeah. I, I, I fail to believe that. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be. You know, I hate. Uh, we have an influx of conspiracy theories, and I hate. But the idea, I feel like that's a film they've probably parted with quite a lot of money to a studio uh, that they now need to recoup by having people watch it. I don't know. That's just, <laughs> that's just me. I, I don't believe that that film. Watch the trailer for that film. 
I don't believe it's going to make a lot of people want to watch it. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, my I've I've already got a mile long watch list on Netflix, so I'm I'm apprehensive to kind of get too immersed in another platform. That's why when I got that free trial of Shudder to watch uh, to watch Host, I I was uh, kind of apprehensive to look through what's on Shudder because I've already got so many films I I have um, have not, have yet to watch on Netflix, both kind of new and old. I also kind of have taken to recording a lot of films films off the telly this year going old school and kind of recording them on my on the box you know so like you know I kind of listen out for like tv movie of the week on Kermode and Mayo and kind of hear what classics uh, are kind of on on free to air television and um, you know as a result I've discovered things like both Paddington films this year because I recorded them off the telly and you know a second mention of it Snowpiercer was on film four so after after seeing parasite i was i i literally just wanted to watch every bong june home film that i could that i could get my hands on and so snowpiercer was the was the kind of next step really you watching recording two paddington films off the telly is probably the most wholesome thing i've heard in 2020 so uh, pure so uh, pure we- how sweet that is. Um, another thing about BFI players worth mentioning is that a lot of the films on there have, as well as the play, is being able to play them, you can watch a Mark Kermode introduction mm. to those films beforehand, which is always great to hear his insights and to maybe hear a bit about his history of the film and why he, you know, why he champions it so much. Um, so that's definitely a, I think that it's easy, you know, Netflix and Amazon Prime are championed a lot but there are lots of other streaming platforms around the same price money that we would spend on so many other wasteful things that are worth investing in them to get the broadest you know possible picture of what's out there so you've already mentioned uh you know films like uh, the vast of night and uncle frank and you know we've spoken about uh, host at this point as well um what were some of your kind of highlights in terms of uh, films that went kind of straight to streaming this year now this is going to be a film that i know you're going to want to talk about because i think you were going to get you went you were going to start talking about it earlier you almost talked about it but the five bloods is definitely a film that i was incredibly excited about watching on i don't know i'm so my ignorance whether it got a cinema a cinematic release i think it, it did not i well i i think it probably got a very limited cinema release probably in the I same think, way that like uncut gems got a cinema yeah, release a lot of them get pretty i think a lot of a lot of films there is a sort of token kind of limited release. Um, Defy Bloods was definitely a film that I was excited about and really fascinated by. We were talking about Queen and Slim being very much a film of now. I think The Five Bloods was very much a film of now as well because it had brought together all these men who had been who'd fought together and were now considerably older men whose personal sensibilities and their political sensibilities were completely different from one another. And Delroy Lindo, who's an actor that I think is possibly the coolest human being in the world, and think <laughs> of like um, if you have get shorty and you know broken arrow he's been in loads of movies he's just a very very cool guy and to, to see him as an older man playing what i think is probably one of his best performances and he is a, a truly a great actor as this very very angry conflicted and i think i don't think it's 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 making a mental leap i think he mentioned in the film trump voting which yes, yeah. may, you know is quite which causes some some friction between him and his 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 friends it's it's, it's a really an interesting film because it's it's a war film it's a um, treasure hunt film it's a coming of age film it's all these different elements and 
obviously uh, Chadwick Boseman's performance, he plays this character who is, you know, who is almost, he, who is in all scenes is sort of shown in this completely deity-like light. And it's so yeah. he's brilliant in the film. It's, it's, it's a really good film. I think there are some, some flaws to it. But in terms of really raw nerve moments in cinema this year, the sort of rant that Delroy Lindo goes on, frenzied kind of fever dream thing he goes on, is, is, you know, among one of the most powerful moments of the year, I think. Yeah, I well, good, good, good predicting that I wanted to talk about The Five Bloods, which I only just watched this last weekend. This is only the second Spike Lee joint that I've ever actually watched. My introduction to Spike Lee was, uh, was Black Klansman a couple of years ago um, and I've yet to kind of go back and watch uh, any of other of these films apart from now The Five Bloods and yeah I think I think it's interesting what you say it is almost like a a, a second coming of age movie isn't it you know when they're kind of walking through the, these these um, four Vietnam War veterans black American uh, veterans um, and the son of one of the veterans the the sort of camaraderie that you feel amongst the bloods kind of reminded me of a film like Stand By Me it was an interesting another interesting thing which I think might have, I'm not sure whether it was a creative decision or one a logistical one a budget one but the fact that all of the actors who are you know probably relatively older men now play themselves as younger men <laughs> as a weird you know, when in your memory are you that age, or you do you recast yourself? So there was there was something quite powerful of that idea of them being there, and, be, and I yeah, I think there was something there. It, I don't know whether why it was chosen to do it that way, but I thought it really added something to the film. But you definitely, if I mean, not a 2020 film, far from it. But you're talking about Spiley. I mean, do the right thing is a film that you have to watch. Mm-hmm. ASFP, the F being feasibly. Um, as soon as feasibly that's, possible. That's, I've, stolen that line. I've stolen that line from the thick of it, one of my favourite shows. Um, it's a, I think that The Five Bloods is an incredible film. Another what film that I, if I may, which I've seen really recently, is the film Possessor, which is Ooh, the... Oh, yeah. I haven't Brand, seen it yet. Which is um, the Brandon Cronenberg film, which, I mean, Brandon Cronenberg is the son of David Cronenberg, who is synonymous with a type of film, with, you know, largely with a type of film called, you know, body horror, which are these sort of visceral films that a lot of the time focus on the body going wrong, the body turning against us, the body manifesting various... various he's done some incredible films. His son, you know, is a chip off the old block. He's done this film, which is just I think it's an incredible film and had not seen anything like it for quite a long time it's like it's hard to say you know it's it's reductive to say it's this plus this but it really is you know it's the formula for it would be quite mad something you know it'd be something like you know Inception plus Lost Highway plus maybe Clockwork Orange plus Blade Runner. It's just, it's really, really a powerful film. It's really incredibly gory in a way that is not schlocky, but feels, you know, probably my age, but films that are incredibly violent, I find much harder to watch now. It, but it is incredibly violent and it stars and Sean Bean's in it. So it's got something for everyone. Well, we um, all know what's going to happen to him by the end of it. So Well, yeah, I mean, I no spoilers for me, but... Let's just say he doesn't have a very good time in it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, no spoilers. for the, Maybe it could turn out like The Martian. Who knows? Um, you know, we were all stunned when, uh, when Sean Bean doesn't die in The Martian. I, I'm, I'm really excited to see Possess it. It was, it was shown locally for like one night only in the cinemas. And, and I was 
uh, gutted to have, to have missed it really i'm going to be coming into it from as maybe a slightly different perspective to other people just because not being massively au fait with with the works of david cronenberg very aware obviously of what he's done you know the fly and scanners and and uh, videodrome and what have you um but i think i i probably watched scanners when i was way too young to see it and and have not really kind of gone back to it since uh so i'd be going into it as like a less of a oh it's the film from the son of of david cronenberg and, and more like this is the the se- second feature film i don't think it's his debut but from a really exciting young name in horror filmmaking another exciting new name yeah he did a, he did a, a film before called antiviral the basic plot of which is about a guy who they cultivate illnesses from celebrities so you can experience the illness that a celebrity had and you can go through what they experienced which is on paper a, a, you know a slightly bonkers idea but is obviously a comment on our celebrity obsession and taking that <laughs> dizzying new height oh god that sounds that sounds like hard hard work and yeah we've we've had a bit of a policy in our house during the during during the pandemic of no films involving viral outbreaks or or you know i know a lot of people are kind of going on about the the resurgence of popularity with uh, the film contagion and it was a bit like no, no, nothing about nothing about viral outbreaks. Although I, I, I did break the rule. Um, my my partner came home from work one day uh, and found me watching Train to Busan, which is obviously about a, a zombie outbreak on a train. Train to Busan is a fanta- is is you know I think it can be let off there because it's technically zombies. I mean maybe I'm a glutton <laughs> for, but I've both I've watched both Contagion, which I saw at the cinema and remember I don't think I thought it was far fetched at the time, but I, I do remember finding it quite thinking there was a paranoia to it. It is proved itself to be so prescient and scary how and then the other film was Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman, which is, you know, fairly grim as well, but a bit more panto. Yeah, God, I haven't seen that film in years. Weirdly enough, the one the one the ones that I went back to just on a kind of late night perusing Netflix, like I have this list of, you know, iconic films which I've never seen before. And for some reason I went to Neil Marshall's Doomsday, which is fucking Oh, it's, it's dog shit, but you know. Neil Marshall is, hopefully, I think he's doing some new films, and I saw an interview with him relatively recently because they did a 4K re-release of Dog Soldiers, which if you haven't seen oh, it... so it? good. I love Dog Soldiers. Brilliant, schlocky um, bit of genre cinema. He obviously did The Descent as well. Brilliant. Um, yeah, fantastic film. And I think, you know, I, he did, I think he had a, he's he's been a busy man because he's done, he did a lot of Game of Thrones and stuff like that. It would mm-hmm. be great to have him making a return to genre cinema because film like again not this year but something you know something in 2021 would be great from him because if there are better executed scares than in um the descent i'm yet to see them some of them fantastic yeah and the descent part two considering it was i think a, a director dvd uh sequel not descent, not not all that bad all things considered well that's the descent part two technically shouldn't exist. I, I don't want to do spoilers here, but the US versus UK ending of the descent was different. So the oh really the second descent only works based on the US, the slightly more hopeful US ending. So I yeah, it's it's not bad, but it's I think it's it's nowhere. It's not a patch on the first one. Yeah, no, fair enough. So we we kind of jump forward to the to the reopening of cinemas uh, between between lockdowns, and I actually, you know, when I went to my local cinema, I saw very little in the way of new films. Um, now, 
I, I think people are going to probably find it quite mad that I'm doing a Films of the Year podcast and I have still not seen Tenet. So uh, is this a good opportunity to kind of hand over to you for a 45-minute essay on Tenet? <laughs> uh, four, yeah, 45 minutes. I'm not sure I can just say 40, 45 minutes on, on Tenet. What I would say is that uh, Christopher Nolan is one of those directors who has his films coming out are an event and I think the focus on Tenet was very much an unfair one and it basically single-handedly as the saviour of cinema. I personally, even in his his run of in the films Christopher Nolan done, don't, don't think it measures up to the films he's done before. The fundamental flaws in it are the things that are that people have said already. It has an unbelievably overbearing score and quite a dodgy sound mix that means that a lot of the very exposition-heavy dialogue was lost. I think that it looks incredible. It has completely unnecessary locations everywhere. But that's, you know, I think where the Bond, some people have mentioned the Bond comparison, um, you know, it definitely had that fetish for locations completely supposedly central to the story it looked amazing on the on the big screen i can't say that it serves but at various points i found myself bewilderingly lost and if it did one thing i'd say it it reinforced why inception was such a good film because oh inception- wow <laughs> had a complexity to it but it also had you know these big set pieces and it just i think it just about it was very exposition heavy and i think it just it managed that that trick i know there are some people who they're detractors from that film but i think it's um it managed a feat that tenet didn't really make perhaps repeat viewing i've only seen it once could it possibly have lived up to the hype even as either a christopher nolan film or as the film that's single-handedly saving cinema maybe not but it was not what I necessarily wanted it to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I kind of avoided it in the cinemas just on account of the fact that some people were saying, oh yeah, I've seen it three times and I think I get it. And I'm like, oh, I, just, I don't know if, if I can, I don't know if I can be asked, James, I'll be honest. It is so complicated. But I mean, there was a lot of exposition in Inception, but it kind of, it pasted along the way. It basically had a, a character who was brought into the dynamic who was a vessel to bounce all this exposition off. In Tenet, everyone is spouting stuff off at the same time and you do get lost. Mm. And set pieces are impressive and they look great in, in, you know, in the trailers and they look great in the film. But it's not done it's straightforward. And if, if it's not clear after multiple viewings, I, an ending that's up to interpretation is one thing, but you know, how skillfully can the film have been made or how you know the nuts and bolts of a screenplay and people's... And how well can that job have been done if the majority of people seeing it still don't quite understand it. Yeah. And I don't because it's really enigmatic. I think it's because it's really, really confusing. We've obviously already spoken a lot about uh, some new horror films this year. It's been a brilliant year for, for horror cinema. And the only a new film that I saw kind of post, post lockdown one when the cinemas reopened was Saint Maud, the feature length directorial debut of uh, Rose Glass. I spent a lot of 2020 and some part of 2019 very, very excited for this from the, from the viewing of the, the first trailer. And I think your friend and mine, again, another brilliant writer, Sam Law, had seen it quite early on on the festival run and had talked a big game about it. So, you know, and I, I trust Sam's opinion when it, when it comes to cinema. 
So um, I, I was very, very excited for this. Uh, less, uh, you know, less a horror, I guess, and more of, you know, there's been a lot of conversation. Is it a horror? Is it more of a kind of psychological unsettling character study listening to interviews with rose glass she was talking a lot about films like taxi driver but also um uh, misery as well the adaptation of the stephen king novel and i think i think that's very very true really maud who is played by morpeth clark to brilliant effect i must say it's one of one of my favorite performances of this year and i hope she gets all the awards for it she's such a, a kind of conflicting character you know as this former uh, former NHS nurse who is uh, subjected to some kind of um, uh, inexplicable trauma, finds some kind of um, salvation in God and essentially goes around hoping that she's on a mission from God. I've probably not sold that very well, but she, she, she's under these delusions that make you feel very kind of sympathetic f- uh, for her, but at the same time does some truly truly contemptible things i think the same is 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 for her kind of co-star uh, the character of amanda played by jennifer ely uh, again to brilliant effect the these very kind of complex conflicting characters uh, are what makes this film kind of truly scary sure it's got some actual scares but they are a, a few and far between and kind of used very effectively it's it's all about the atmosphere with with saint maud and I absolutely loved it. Have you have you seen it? I I must admit I have not seen it, but there are. Oh wow! There are definitely uh, it's a film. I've, it's on the list to watch, and I know from everything I've read about it, it's very much in my wheelhouse. So I, I yeah, I, I, I wish I had seen it. There have been some other examples of films which you know can you strictly describe as horror, but I think have horror as a tag that can mean that some people don't necessarily want. They think they don't like horror films, or they you know mm-hmm. they would be scared. I think um, the film Relic and the film His House, I think, are both really unsettling, effective films that are um, seemingly, you know, difficult subject matter already, but then kind of an unsettling horror edge to them as well. Yeah, I, Relic is on my watch list. I've not seen Relic, but heard wonderful, wonderful, th- <laughs> as very sort of um, uh, bleak things about it, but at the same time, nothing but kind of universal praise I guess uh his house uh, I watched the other day and really 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 enjoyed again like another film that just has two brilliant central performances from from Shope Derisu and uh Wumbi Masaku they they play uh South Sudanese asylum seekers uh Bol and Riau um who come over to the UK and uh, kind of put in less than sufficient accommodation I'll, I'll kind of stop explaining the plot at that point because I think you know it's it, one it's complex to explain and again it's another it's another film which I think is just best to go into blind but uh I thought his house was a brilliant balance of of psychological and and supernatural and really kind of vivid uh, horror set pieces but the real horror kind of lies in the often very graphic sort of socio-realist horror, um, especially when the, the sort of flashbacks to their ordeal in, in kind of conflict-torn South Sudan. There's some really hard-to-watch stuff in that. 
Um, it reminded me kind of tonally of a film like The Babadook, <laughs> particularly, I, I think the, the final 30 minutes of, of his house are, are particularly kind of upsetting, but I, I'm, I'm really, really glad I watched it. I think it was a great, great film. That's on Netflix, by the way, if anyone's interested. Both incredible films. Yeah, and like you say, the less said, I think, for Relic as well, much more effective if you go in knowing less. Going back to the kind of reopening of cinemas, St. Maud was the only kind of new film I saw in, in that kind of window but I took advantage of the of the many many re-releases that were on offer from cinemas in a you know in a bid to kind of get bums on seats but also uh, celebrating some anniversaries my first trip back to the cinema post lockdown was Jurassic Park and I spent the whole film just grinning like an idiot I've seen that film so many times but I really like seeing films that I already know and love on the big screen for the first time. You you have a sharpened focus when you're in the cinema and there are so many things that you miss when you just like stick it on ITV2 on a Sunday. Absolutely. So what year were you born? I was born in 1994. <laughs> oh no. Um, <laughs> so, so, I, I was born in 90, so I was nine when Jurassic Park came out of the cinema. People, a lot of people doing this thing at the moment, what was the most impactful moment? Up to that, you know, there's a certain film that comes up when you're at the perfect age, ready to receive it. And Jurassic Park came out when I was nine. And what's interesting when you watch it now, it has the thrills and spills, the amazing set pieces. But the first, say, third is very, very talky. Yeah. And that's much more like the, you know, much more like the episodic TV that people binge watch now. The very kind of clever dialogue and, you know, philosophical debates. But, you know, not necessarily what you'd expect from blockbusters now. You'd never get scenes like that in the Jurassic World films as they are now. Mm-hmm. The, the dumbing down of that franchise, is, I think, is a, is, a, is a massive injustice. And what's interesting is I think The Lost World actually got cut to the quick a bit quicker and got on the island and got things going because is a reaction to people sort of saying that perhaps it was a bit slow getting going. Uh, Jurassic Park is one of the most perfect blockbusters and seeing it, it's not it's a film you could never get sick of because the images are so powerful the characters are so brilliant and also some of those you know those music cues if john williams music cues are just part of most people's salt it's part of the furniture it's, it's living you know living breathing those you cannot take those images away from that music and that is what's that's the sign of a film that's an absolute classic and you know when the music's coming in and you know yeah. when, when it's going to happen but sometimes that familiarity is what makes it really special yeah although I'm, i must say hearing john williams score on the biggest sound system that, that i could uh, that i could get access to was fantastic but considering the the wormholes of the internet i've often found myself disappearing down there was that kind of moment where they they kind of that that first big crescendo of the score and they see all the kind of the bronto brontosaurus brontosauri coming out of the lake. Um, I I couldn't help but hear the badly played melodica version that's that's that gone is, viral on YouTube. I mean that's the other thing is that you know you've made something really iconic when loads and loads of teenagers on the internet take the Mickey out of it. Um, yeah, <laughs> that is one of the problems sometimes going back to something that's very it's taken on a life of its own by being sent up but um yeah it's just that just it's just a film that's very a very um spielberg trademark that even the smaller moments still are so iconic Mm. whether it's you know the dust being blown away from the bones or the the glass of water you know these 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 just 
incredible. It was, it was so good. Oh, oh, I loved it. Which I remember now. It was done uh, with a. It was done with a. I think the only way they could get it done is with a guitar string to get the the the, the water vibrating the right way. They had a guitar string going under the dashboard as being passed. Also, I think Jurassic Park, I think I watched a documentary about it. And Adam Jones from Tool did some of the CGI on that. And it weirdly no. just stand in the background doing some tech techie. I mean, he was not, I mean, he's obviously, this documentary, he's not saying it's Adam Jones from Tool. He was just in the background <laughs> of his like, hang on a minute. So that was that was a cool thing to spot as well. To bring it, it into music into the proceedings. Is, is this when we find out that Maynard was like a key grip on Raiders of the Lost Ark or something? And Maynard has had some involvement with film. Um, I don't know if you've seen some of his film appearances. They are as left field as you might expect. I'm not going to say what they are, but you may want to check them out. Okay, yeah, I might have to go go back and uh, look look up his. I've never I've never been compelled to search Maynard James Keenan on IMDb, but I, I think I might have to do that. Let's just say he's not going to be bothering the Oscars. <laughs> he, he's he's less. Uh... Oh, I was trying to think of a brilliant musician turned actor for a second. Keanu Reeves. Oh, no, yeah, no, that was the other one. Less, um, less Keanu Reeves and more Flea. I mean, Flea was actually in Queen Slim. I thought he that was. was uh, he was spotted him, kind of uh, this kind of earnest, kind of elder statesman type character. I was just like, how did that happen? You know, he was in Point Break playing some surfer dude. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, pretty much take anything I said about Jurassic Park and again apply it to The Empire Strikes Back, which was another film I got to see on the big screen for the first time this year. But you know, I feel like if there if there's an opportunity to see a film for the first time and that opportunity is on the big screen, I think, you know, take it. If you feel safe going out to the cinema, uh, you know, even at this time with social distancing, I've always felt very safe when it comes to going to the cinema or even like post-pandemic. But some of the films that I've seen for the first time in the cinema this year, uh, Memories of Murder, which was re-released kind of after the... the more widespread interest in in Bong Joon-ho's filmography post Parasite. I I loved it. I I maybe didn't love it as much as Parasite. That would have been a tall order, but I think it was a really gripping police procedural. And again, just another example of world cinema that kind of sweeps you up and you forget you're watching a, a you know a Korean subtitled film within five minutes. I watched. Uh, <laughs> this is you know from going from quite artful cinema to to seeing Scream for the first time this year. Wes Craven's Scream. I mean. It's quite clear that no one has done super self-aware, super meta horror as well since, with the possible exception of maybe like The Cabin in the Woods. I, I absolutely adored it. It was fantastic. Cabin in the Woods is, a good, is definitely a good shout for that. Do you not think that Scream has aged really bad? <laughs> it really has. Like It's like, you know, Jurassic Park was made before Scream. Still looks like it could be made like yesterday. Scream just looks incredibly dated now. All of them, you know, all of the music cues in it, everything, everyone's hairdo, everything about it is so 90s. And I remember loving it, but I actually think now of the four films, I actually think the one that's aged the best is Scream 2. Okay, um, I've heard Scream 2 is equally as good as Scream and it, then it kind of drops off a little bit for Scream 3 and 4. And now having seen the first one, I haven't seen any of the others, but I'm excited for Scream 5, also known as Scream confusingly oh yeah i think whoever said that scream three and four drop off 
slightly was being really kind. I think <laughs> I think Screen Thief was a bit of it was quite a bit of a shit bed which tried to which sort of you wonder whether it was trying to be clever in tying things up in a really unbelievable overarching plot and then four was sort of trying to undo that. I think film four are very bad. I loved Screen One, but I think actually maybe Screen Two is better and time's been kinder to it. Oh okay. Spe- speaking of uh, seeing classic horrors for the first time, I went on my own to go and watch Psycho. This was the first time I've ever seen an Alfred Hitchcock film. Again, I'll be the first person to I'll be the what? first person to admit, James, that I have a lot a lot of blind spots. And so when Psycho was being released for its 60th anniversary, I thought, absolutely, I'll go on Halloween on my own to go and see, go and see that. And obviously, like, the shower scene is, you know, iconic. And to be fair, do we need to really give a spoiler warning for a film that's 60 years old? You know what's interesting? I would say I'm, I'm going to retain the spoiler there. I do think Psycho is a film that a lot of people know about the iconography of, but have not necessarily seen. They know about this sort of jabbing, screeching score and they know about some of the shots but I do think it's if you think about if you haven't seen it watch it immediately yes but also about when that film came out in mainstream cinemas think about when that film came out and think about the idea of having that magic now they used to stop people from going into the cinema late because the film would lose a lot of its impact yeah because starting point in that film we think we're with the central character and then things spark. It's an incredibly clever film, and we, as we're talking about, there was so, I mean, Hitchcock, so many, so many, incre- North by Northwest for the most incredible sort of, that, that rollicking pace and great set yeah. pieces. I have since seen Vertigo, I should mention Vertigo, as well. Vertigo was loved by filmmakers, but sort of didn't do particularly well, and then I think had a bit of a resurgence in the 80s, and then a lot of directors sort of, I mean, Scorsese, and a lot of directors, Peter Bogdanovich, cite it as being this, this classic of Brian De Palma is another person that he does, but they're all, I mean, he's done some incredible, incredible films. So you are, that's a real treasure trove to go into now. Absolutely. The the last film I want to mention, then I promise we'll get on to our favourite films of the year or the, the, the top five. I was very lucky enough to be able to catch a local screening of uh, Matthew Kasovitz's La N on its uh, 25th anniversary, the 4K restoration from the BFI. I knew very little about Latin until the kind of uh, the conversation erupted around its its 25th anniversary but it, it's quite telling how prescient that film felt despite the fact that it was released in 1995 i think that if we were including re-releases in the top five this year it would easily be in the top five maybe even the top two i absolutely adored it uh lehane's an incredible incredible film and given you know some of the uh, the tensions of this year it's 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 also a film that is really timely to be re-released now you know, some people, you know, the, the, the French language, the black and white, they, they all, you know, if those are things that p- put viewers off, then it's completely their loss. It's, yeah. it's a powerful film which says as much, if not more now than when it was first released. And if it's a film that does appeal, I think in terms of those uh, topics, those um, issues it deals with, the film, uh, the Haneke film, Hidden, I think is an incredible film, as is the, the film A Prophet, um, which is incredible. Right, okay. If, if Lehane meant something to you, I think A Prophet is a very interesting companion piece. It, it meant a huge amount to me. Weirdly enough, like, even though we're on a fucking podcast, I can't quite put it into words right now, even though I've been kind of sat on it for the last few months, but... 
uh, it was another one of those heart in heart in throat moments. And weirdly enough, as well, found myself very um, very captivated by the sort of camaraderie among the three central characters as well. A lot of the conversation this year was around quite what a kind of reflective and contemplative piece of cinema it is. There, there's obviously the the kind of tensions between the the residents of the French slum neighbourhoods and police. All, all that aside, it's a lot of people kind of recognised it and kind of reappraised it as a much more meditative piece of cinema. I, I can't personally sit in that that group of people because, like I say, I'd only seen it for the first time this year and knew very little about it beforehand. But, oh boy, I'm glad I went to go and see that in the cinema or just at all, really. That that film will stay with me for life. Well, that's great. And, then, you know, having done that, you know that taking those chances and going to see these films is rewarding. And, you know, you'll do that a lot more, especially, and, you know, it'd be great when cinemas are open again. So before we go into our respective top five list because i think we've we've been going on for for quite some time now and and could continue to go on about films for 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 quite some time some of the listeners of bitching brew have been very kind to tell me about their favorite films of 2020 some have already been mentioned some haven't first things first um i have to kind of call out the the sheer gall of my partner for suggesting shrek because it's her favourite film, whatever year it is, and ripped ripped the shit out of my love of, you know, being a movie geek and and kind of worshipping at the altar of Mark Kermode by writing an essay which mentioned about the character development being beautifully crafted and feeling each and every whirlwind emotion. She pointed out that it has so many layers, pun fully intended, incredible poignancy and a dope-as-fuck soundtrack. So I mean, I can only admire that dedication. I mean, nice, nice try, Tasman. But yeah, uh, that's that's not going to fly with us. Hidden Mothers, who are a, a great band from uh, from Sheffield. I think this is probably Liam, their bassist, who suggested this one. Uh, they said Possessor is up there for them. Uh, they said they were thinking about it for hours after it finished. Such a head fuck. I absolutely concur with them. Schwim Bandari said, "I'm thinking of ending things," which I've, I've not I've not actually seen. It's on Netflix. Um, a beautifully shot film with an incredibly bleak subtext that made them want to read the book and discover more of Charlie Kaufman's work. Well, anything that's a sort of a gateway film to the source material or to other films is a good thing. Think of many things. I read the book first and I thought that it, I did think it was perhaps unfilmable. So it was good to see it wasn't very, yeah, very affecting places makes you quite uneasy. Mm. There were a couple of people who just kind of gave me the titles of their films and, and not an explanation. So Jen Bicknell said Jojo Rabbit. Steady, steady. Uh, <laughs> Jack Utley said uh, The Lighthouse, which is not a film that we've, we've discussed during this podcast, but was one of the first films I saw this year. And whew, wow, hard work, that film. You know, we were talking earlier on about films that feel timely or effective. If there's a film that's more unsettling in its depiction of being cooped up and the kind oh, of the God, man- yeah. sense of manners that, that one can feel being like that, then it was definitely... It was definitely that. It wouldn't be an episode of Bitch and Brew without a contribution from my father, Mark Grandon, who said Arkansas because he just keeps going on about it. And let me tell you, James, he just keeps going on about Arkansas at the moment on Netflix. Um, so he's just trolling you. Is your dad trying to trigger you via 
the means of Twitter. Yes, yeah. He says, each time I watch it, I find more to love about it. And I, I promise, Dad, I will actually watch Arkansas at some point. Just, it's, it's been busy, you know? I've had shit to do. Um, and finally, the, 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 best, um, the best submission came from a friend of the podcast, Max Pentecost, a dear old friend of mine, recently had... Uh, an amendment in the Wittertainment Code of Conduct named after him. I don't know if you are a listener to Kermode and Mayo, but they've been revising their Code of Conduct for 2020. And the Max Pentecost Amendment is is quite a brilliant addition to it. So Max Pentecost, and this is quite a lengthy uh, review, but it's, it's brilliant. I was actually lucky enough to see Parasite in 2019, but since it didn't get officially released until 2020 in the UK, I consider it my favourite of the year. It's an absolute masterpiece that everyone should watch, but since it's been discussed so much before and after its Oscars win, I don't have anything to add to the discussion, and I'd rather recommend Steve McQueen's Mangrove instead. As part of McQueen's small acts anthology of films that follow the lives of West Indian immigrants living in Britain in the mid to late 20th century, Mangrove is a drama following the real-life case of the Mangrove Nine. The film centres around a group of black activists who are arrested after protesting the police targeting a Caribbean restaurant in Notting Hill called The Mangrove, which the film takes its name from. The film is a particularly powerful watch this year after how big the Black Lives Matter movement has become. I didn't know anything about the story, so I was glued to my TV watching it unfold and felt physically overwhelmed by the tension that had built up by the time it reached its conclusion. It's currently on BBC iPlayer and well worth watching for one, as a piece of British history that isn't discussed nearly as much as it should be, and two, because it's a fantastic film. I mean, why are we even here, James, when when listeners can send in things like that? Thank you, Max, by the way. Just edit that, just cut that bit, and then that would be, this should be the whole podcast. I I agree with absolutely everything said there, 100%. Okay, fantastic. I have not watched any of the uh, Small Axe films yet, but have heard very, very good things, especially about Mangrove. And the second film in the anthology, which name completely escapes me at the moment, and uh, Red, White and Blue, the one with John Boyega in as well. Really excited to watch those. Most recently, and that was, um, yeah. I I interrupted you earlier during your honourable mention, so give me some more, and then your top five of the year. Right, this is uh, honourable mentions. I think um, the lighthouse, uh, obviously. I don't know. Is the Invisible Man technically this year? Yes. Yeah, that did come the out Invisible this year. Man, honourable mention: um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, another incredible film. Um, King of Staten Island. Well, mm. that's, that's straight to uh, to streaming uh, platforms. The Vast of Night, I've already mentioned, and then the film, and then we danced is another. Incredible film, well worth checking out. But my top five, um, number five, almost bringing things bang up to date because it's out so recently. Um, Mank. Wow, yeah, okay. I haven't seen Mank yet. Film from uh, David Fincher about the the writing of Citizen Kane. Uh, as a double bill with Citizen Kane, I think you should see Citizen Kane first. Mm-hmm. A lot of the styling, a lot of the is 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 you know a homage to to Citizen Kane. It's, it's a very understated Gary Oldman performance, which sounds like a surprise, surprising thing to say, given that he's, he's quite an effervescent character he plays. In beautifully put together, incredible film. Number four, Uncut Gems, which we've talked about at length. Uh, number three, Queen and Slim. Number two, 1917. And number one, as in a lot of people's lists, um, Parasite. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, wow. Um, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of similarities in our top five. My my honourable mentions. Um, I want to do want to give a shout out to his house, even though I just saw it very recently. I thought it was a great bit of um, a bit of British cinema. Again, the the lighthouse was really really close for me, but it's just uh, what what a head fuck that film is. Honestly, uncut gems as well. Just just missed out. Have you seen the film Rock? It's currently on Netflix, uh, directed by Sarah Gavron. Relatively recently, actually, and um, so that, that <laughs> I did remember that would be in my honourable mentions also. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put another one in because I, uh, a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. Oh film. yeah, I've not seen it yet. I, a really powerful, um, sweet, sad film for mm. these times. Um, fantastic. Yeah, Rock, Rocks is great. It was it was universally acclaimed. Got a lot of press over the fact that it was using mainly a, a cast of a non-actors. You know, these young black and Asian girls uh, in London. And yeah, I, I I really really liked Rocks. I I wonder perhaps, and I think this might have something to do with having quite a, a sheltered upbringing. Kind of struggled to really uh, relate to the film. It's ultimately very heartwarming because it's you know that that sort of sisterhood a, a, among the um among the sort of teenage characters um but the last 10 15 minutes of that film completely ruined me honestly it it smashed my heart into a million pieces before gluing it back together for a kind of heartwarming uh, finale i guess i'm starting to think i should have put it in my it should definitely honorable mentions i've started if we re-record this next week my list would probably be different the my list i've tried to do the most in i guess the films that have most endured like the average five days out of how many days out of five would I put them in my top five? So yeah. So uh, my my number five film, uh, a very recent addition to my top five. Um, I've gone for Host. I think a brilliant, very clever bit of cinema, especially impressive when you consider the whole thing was done. I think I think we mentioned earlier it was done in twelve weeks. Not an original concept in the slightest you know we've obviously had the found footage horror genre kind of uh, merge into that kind of computer set horror was it unfriended a couple of years ago that was kind of done through a video chat so not entirely original but i i feel like it kind of raises the bar of the genre number four i've cheated a little bit because i genuinely can't separate the two and i think there is a, a lot in common between them i've gone for uh to five bloods and 1917 both holding the the kind of the number four spot i'm sorry i can't i can't I separate the two i kind of wish you'd gone first if i thought there was going to be these uh these little uh <laughs> cheats i might have i might have done that as well I, I will i will i will i'll let it pass yeah i think we've mentioned about delroy lindo's performance i would be absolutely aghast if if he is not in oscar contention this year chadwick boseman's performance brings you know there was there was a new level of poignancy to chadwick boseman's appearance uh, in his film especially following his his tragic passing this year we haven't talked about the score the brilliant score from terence blanchard really kind of rousing but it's then it's it's cut him with with tracks from what's going on by marvin gay uh that acapella like isolated vocal take they use of the title track from what's going on shook me to to my core uh, as did uh, delroy lindo's kind of feverish director camera monologue I shared it with with 1917 because i think 
two films this year that really have kind of emulated the reality that war is hell. Number three, uh, I've gone for St. Maud, one one of my most anticipated films of the year and one that definitely paid off. I'm so excited to see what Morpheth Clark does next, as well as Rose Glass, the director. I would like to see them both maybe get their credit from the BAFTAs next year. There's that category of uh, outstanding debut by a director, and I think Rose Glass should be in there as well as the general director category. And Morpheth Clark, I mean, she's currently... She might have finished filming it now, but I believe she's going to be playing Galadriel in an adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, a TV adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. And I can just really picture her in that role. Beautifully and harrowingly shot down to the down to the final, the very final shot of the film. Uh, oh God, it's going to stay with me for life. And another brilliant score. Adam Janota Zowski. I've probably uh, mispronounced his, his last name, but very much reminds me of the, the scores that Reznor and Ross do. Just kind of harrowing, I guess, is, is the only word I can come up with for, for St. Maud. Uh, that's why it's my number three. Number two, uh, Queen and Slim. If 2020 could be summed up in a film, I'd say it's Queen and Slim. Uh, it left me feeling seething with, with anger, but then just full of, of warmth and, and hope. And, uh, you know, some of the standout performances of the year from from Daniel Kaluuya and Jodie Turner-Smith. And then finally, my number one, I'm sure probably people have guessed it at this point, is Parasite. Not only is it my film of the year, I think it is possibly my film of the last 10 years. I think it is objectively perfect and and kind of universally entertaining it is obviously stylized and dramatic it is then very sort of darkly comic and quite whimsical kind of scary in places but not in like a sort of horror film sense um and painstakingly intense and anxiety inducing at times so so hard not to go into spoiler territory here but it's just a meticulously crafted film by by director Bong and his his kind of motley crew of uh, cinematographers and production designers and it's and it's amazing to know you can really disappear into a, a wormhole of YouTube content about how everything is kind of there for a reason and there is so much subtext and symbolism in that film but at the core of it is just a truly fantastic story so whether you are someone who just loves films for the entertainment value and the escapism you will get something absolutely invaluable out of Parasite or you know if you are someone who really likes to pick apart and analyse films and go, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? What's the kind of hidden meaning and the satire behind this? Again, you're going to get even more out of it. It kind of gives back as much as you are willing to give to it. And I think everyone should give everything that they can to Parasite. I, I think it is. It's perfect. It's a perfect film. So yeah, that's that's my top five. Sorry, I cheated on the number four spot. I felt like I waffled on earlier, so I kept mine. <laughs> I kept mine brief. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We we have gone on for a little while, but I think it's safe to say that 2020, despite the fuck of of COVID and many other things, at least it has been a brilliant year for film. James, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a long old time. Uh, I'm so glad it can finally happen and we can talk about film. You are welcome back anytime. Maybe you come back for awards season. We can do some sort of Oscar party podcast, perhaps. The pleasure was all mine. That sounds fantastic. I'd be well up for that and can talk about some music as well. You know, oh, I don't, well, yes. let's keep, let's just diversify. Let's do a bit of everything. Um, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
but before you go, is there anything you would like to plug? You obviously mentioned music and you're still very much writing for, for Kerrang. Any, anything else that you would like to plug in particular? Kerrang is doing some amazing stuff at the moment. We're doing weekly cover stories, which are well worth reading. I've written some of them, but don't let that put you off. And also work for Age UK. And in the moment, we're doing our winter appeal. So if you could think about donating some money for older people who have no one else to turn to at a difficult time, uh, that would be really helpful. And in January, we're doing a thing called Run Your Age, which uh, if you get your age, any increment, whether it's kilometers, miles, steps, um, if you want to pledge to running them and maybe getting someone to sponsor you, that would be uh, more than appreciated by myself and my colleagues. Right. Well, this has been the Bitch and Brew album. Uh, albums. I'm so stuck in albums territory. It's the films that we were doing so well not to fuck up after after such a lengthy hiatus from podcasting. But yeah, the films of 2020 special. Thank you, James, and uh, and Merry Christmas to you. And in the words of Wayne Campbell, and scene. Merry Christmas. Yippee Kaye motherfuckers. That is a wrap on Bitch and Brew's Films of 2020 special. Thank you very much to James Hickey. I'll leave links for, for all of you to go and check out all his fantastic work in the bio for this episode. And um, and as discussed, I'm positive that that's not the last you'll be hearing of that utter gent on this on this podcast. So uh, thank you also to all the listeners and members of the the bitching crew, as I like to call them, who enlightened us by telling us about their films of the year. Do continue to let me know what your favourite film of 2020 is on social media. Uh, Links to follow Bitch and Brew on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as always, are in the bio. Um, Work is already underway for some excellent podcast content to come your way in the new year. A lot of it is admittedly music-oriented, but if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, like I, like, you know, as much as I did making it and bringing it to you, then then we'll do some more film-based stuff soon for sure. And as we go into 2021... I'll also be looking to do some more stuff around around other art forms, the stuff I was discussing at the beginning, whether that is design or photography. There's a few friends that, that are kind of amazing in that field that I'd love to get on the podcast to kind of pick their brains about their art form of choice. Or, um, you know, even, even if we do some more professional wrestling stuff, I'm keeping an open mind, uh, to be honest with you. And I'm hoping that I can do it alongside some friends and collaborators, much like I have done over, over the last couple of podcasts with the likes of uh, of James and with uh, Dan Fisher. So uh, if you think you're up to the challenge, uh, if you think you've got something uh, to say about good art and uh, you want to air it on this podcast, then then get in touch via social media. Let's talk and let's let's. I'm, I'm kind of open to collaboration with um with whoever really. Uh, I I am gonna shut up in a minute and leave you to enjoy the rest of the holidays. Uh, if you're listening to this as I put it out. But before I go, I did want to say thank you, not only to everyone who's listened this far, um, but especially to those of you who have been patient while Bitch and Brew was on hiatus uh, for much of the second half of the year. I really, really hope that you are able to enjoy your holidays uh, to you know take the edge off of this really, really weird year. I'm bringing this podcast to you from the place I have often called the the Bitchin HQ, which is my little flat in Portsmouth on the south coast of the UK. And for those of you who who aren't aware, whether you're kind of just listening internationally or in a different part of the UK, 
Uh, Portsmouth, along with large parts of, of London and the southeast of England, have now been placed under lockdown restrictions, which means we've had to make some very sort of sad last minute changes to our plans for Christmas. And it's a sobering end to a fairly sobering year all round, but I remain really grateful for what I have and I realise that not everyone has the luxuries that I often take for granted and let me tell you for all of the frustration that the planning and editing and distribution of this podcast provokes uh, from time to time I am extremely grateful to have had this platform to bring you my often nonsensical musings about music and 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 films and some other you know weird shit to you um and you know just to connect with so many of you since i launched bitch and brew uh what feels like ages ago now in 2016 uh i've made some friends for life through this podcast and long may that continue and here's to hoping that we can make 2021 the most bitching year possible i do sincerely hope you'll be able to join me for that i think that's everything from me and from bitch and brew for another episode and for the year 2020 again thank you if you enjoyed what you heard and you haven't done so already then please subscribe to the pod on spotify or apple podcasts or acast or wherever you get your podcasts uh stay tuned for more good times talking about good art with good people in the new year until then don't forget to be loud be kind be bitching and in the words of bell s preston esquire Ted Theodore Logan and one of my favourite film podcasters Brett Goldstein be excellent to each other